Stevie Wonder is my holy saint. Stevie Wonder inspires me at every turn. When I was little, they said there's a little kid on the, on the scene who's blind and can play drums better than you. I don't think anyone can play drums better than me. We said, no, he can. It wasn't long after we heard little weird fingertips. Live, the Regal Theater in Chicago. Fingertips. Part one and two became a smash. And there he was. And I went and saw him. And he was incredible. We walked on the stage with a girl scream again in Chicago. The way he moved his body because he was so weird. He's blind. He had his own way of like an alien, looked like an alien. Played harmonica genius, sang genius, played bongo genius, knew how to run the crowd. Sang in tune. The band was doing all this stuff, man. He had it down. He was like 11, no, 12 years old. 12 years old. That's when I first saw Steve Wonder. It hit me so hard that I told God that it must be because these guys are blind. Ray Charles and Stevie, they got this gift so deep that in Chicago there was an eclipse of the sun. I went outside and stared at the eclipse of the sun, make myself go blind. Now, you know what I mean? Because I knew if I'd be blind, I could be as bad as they were. That's how bad they were. But it, I couldn't do it. The sun didn't take my, my, my eyes. He just turned 69, and he's still very relevant, still very, very current. I still want to make more hits with him. I love him, and I still want to do more with him. Just to be around him is rarefied air. When we do Carnegie Hall shows, when he walks on the stage, I don't care who's on the stage. Sting, Elton John, James Taylor, Billy Joel, they all go. And they, and they recognize Steve Wonder. It's like rarefied air. The same thing happened when Nina Simone, when Nina came on, it's like rarefied air. They don't talk around her. It's like whatever she needs. Bring me a tissue. Oh, not with a tissue, but Nina Simone. Whatever Stevie needs, people are there for him. And he can walk on almost unannounced. And the place goes in pandemonium. He has that kind of power. And not even rehearse with a band. He'll just say, go into a blues narrative. Go into blues. And play a blues and get a standing ovation on something he never rehearsed. That's how, he, that's how he likes it. Or at halftime, Steve Wonder appeared. And Trudy says, should we bring him on? How do you want to do this? Because Stevie's all of a sudden here. You just go with it. And at night, you go to standing ovation. He's just got a gift like that. No matter what he does, people respond. So I have to give Stevie a lot of love. And then he's also told me stories about when he was a little kid down in the South. He had a white tutor teaching him Braille and all that. And he'd be on the road with the Motown reviews and all. And in the South, there was racial hatred and prejudice. And he couldn't use the bathrooms. He'd even go to gas stations. And they wouldn't let a little blind black boy use the toilet. And the white tutor would say, well, come on, he's just a little black boy. He doesn't hurt anybody. You know, let him use it. Nope. So he had a lot of stories about getting in the South, hardship, and what he saw. And guns coming out with the buses and all that. So he's got a lot of life stories I'd love to make a movie about Steve Wonder and the triumph of his life. And he comes from Saginaw, Michigan. I'm from Kalamazoo. He's from Saginaw, up north. And I met his mother. And his mother's beautiful. She's passed away and went in heaven now. But she worked hard to raise Stevie. And she was a great business person. She told Barry Gordy when they wanted to see him sign Stevie, when he was like 10, 11, whatever it was, that don't sign him like, like he's a blind boy with pencils. Sign him like he's the baddest artist in the world and give him that kind of contract. And made Barry Gordy give him a great contract. And then Stevie went on to make the most money for Motown. 
you know, when he, when he renegotiated to stay at Motown for the songs, the key of life and all that, all that journey of his life, the staggering amounts of millions he made. I'm a fan of Stevie Wonder, obviously. I get together with him and he can play on piano, giant steps, really fast. He hears and sees almost everything. He's very, very, very sharp. He's a Taurus, a bull. He likes chaos. Like if you call him on the phone right now, he's on three other phone calls at the same time. He likes it like that. You hear him talk to this person, and that other person, and another person with a different accent, maybe an English accent, and come back on and talk to you. It's always some kind of chaos like that. I cut Stevie's throat. We play, we, we play like that. I pretend and cut his throat like this. And then he'll cut my throat. And I'll sneak up and cut his throat. And then wrestle the ground. I never knew he liked all that kind of stuff, but he does. He's very physical, so when you cut someone's throat who's blind, you're like, you've really done it, you're like, you won't kill him. So we have fun like that. We've wrestled the ground quite a few times. James Brown's been in this room. He, was said, he said to me, you's one of the only ones keeping the funk alive. Let me say it again. You's one of the onlyest ones keeping the funk alive. I was like, oh my God, Mr. Brown. You don't call him James, you call him Mr. Brown. And before he left that day, my mom came to meet him. Out back, as he got his limousine, my mom put, his, put her hands in his face and said, I want to thank you, Mr. Brown, for writing... Say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. And he went, thank you, ma'am. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you, ma'am. It's a great, great moment. James Brown made it possible for me to be in music. When he came out with Cold Sweat, anybody who knows, that was the coldest, coldest, baddest beat in the world. And if you were a musician, you had no Cold Sweat. If you couldn't play Cold Sweat, you couldn't hang. That's how bad James Brown is, man. You gotta be down, down, down with his music. And I am. And I work with him in this room twice. I'm very, very proud. And when he recorded in here, we have cue cards. I hold the big cue cards. Whatever he's gonna say, I hold the cue card and throw it away, have the next cue card. Whatever he's gonna say, throw it away, have the next cue card. And he was always beautiful and immaculate. And he just met with his wife, the Pope. He was all happy that he got a chance to meet the Pope with his wife, I think the second time he came here. And he often would go in my control room and I have set up on there my keyboard, you know, and it'd be on an organ setting. That was driving crazy. He'd like to go to the keyboard and play organ. Love playing organ on the keyboard as he's talking to you and telling Jim, you know, the kids love the bottom end. The kids love this day love the bottom end. Jim went, what are you talking about? Bottom end bass. And sure enough, you go to LA, go anywhere, and the 808 bass drum, bass, everything's heavy. James predicted that way back. He's really cutting edge, cat man. Really cutting edge. Okay, Ray Charles, Ray Charles, the Himalayan Mountain, the live album of in, Ray Charles in person with what I say, frenzy, tell the truth, drown my own tears. Ah, oh, this is a daunting album. From everybody on it, it's perfection. It's live. It's got like, I think, recorded by one microphone, something like that. But it's incredible. I live with this album. I study this album. I memorize the whole album. So when I met Ray later in my life to produce him in his studios in L.A., in his office. He's in behind his desk. I'm in a chair. And I tell him the story about how I carried that album in the snow with me in Michigan. And I start singing for him. And then you hear the saxophone tear off. He said, hey, 
I wrote that out by my hand, and that's me playing the alto sax solo. So I sit there, and I can't deny it's the Himalayan mountain talking. You can pretend for, a little, for only for, for so long until he's going to stop you and tell you what he did. That is just unbelievable to even write that. He's blind man to write that in the first place and to play the solo that you don't even think he's playing as him. Alto sax solo Ray Charles plays. You even know that about him? Okay. That's him on the solo. So all I'm telling you, man, he's, he's, a, he's rarefied air. And I've heard things like from Smokey Robinson at the Apollo Theater backstage the Miracles don't have the charts. Ray Charles would sit down and write the charts up for them. For the band. Ray Charles something else, man. Ray Charles something else. I remember on the phone call when I very first talked to him on the phone before I even met him. I was describing to him what was going on in pop music from hip-hop. That Sean... Puffy Combs and folks like that would take a sample of another song and make a, a new song out of a sample. For example, I said, Ray, I, I hear you love Brickhouse. He said, yeah, yeah, I love, I love Brickhouse. I said, well, what a lot of these cats are doing, they'll take Brickhouse and they'll sample part of it, or record part of it, and make a little track of it and put a new song on top of that. And he says, I know we don't, you don't really know me. I don't really know you. But I think that's the most fucked up thing I've ever heard. He said, you use your creative mind and give me some creative funk. Okay? I said, okay, Mr. 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 Charles. And when I told Stevie that story, Stevie said, that's how you should start the album with that conversation. But, you know, I didn't record it. It was just in the phone call. That's how it was with Ray. I know, I know I haven't met you yet. But that's the most fucked up thing I've ever heard. There you go. When Eddie Murphy came here to Star Band Studios up front, we had a couch, a long couch. And he would say, I know why you call this place Star Band. It means comfortable couch. He would lay on the couch and he would sleep on the couch. He says, I love this couch, the Star Band couch. So then my mom came by to meet Eddie Murphy. And she again was like I was with, with Richard Pryor. She kept expecting to see this Eddie Murphy, cracking jokes, talking a mile a minute, da-da-da-da. No, he was not. Eddie was complete opposite. Quiet, wore little glasses, very kind of humble, in a kind of intellectual mode, reading a book, kind of not like what you think Eddie Murphy to be. But surprisingly, he was a very good singer. And surprisingly, he could do staggering imitations. Of everybody. Down to Michael Jackson to the T. To the T. Because sound like Michael. Could do everything. Even imitate me. Everything. Just by looking. Gathering something about you. Absorb your molecules like that. And spit you back. He was really, really, really sharp. And I have to give him so much. Because at this time. When I visited him in Hollywood. He was the biggest black star. Man. That I'd ever known. And to have party with him was huge. You go first of all, you want a limousine. It'd be he, me, it'd be him. Uh, not Damon Wynan, Keenan Wynan. So you're Keenan, myself, and her Eddie. And then Keenan and I would just be quiet watching Eddie because he was such a big star that this, the women would go crazy around him. You know LA. But the Eddie at that time was just, just like huge. Huge. I remember also remember in the nightclub with Prince seeing Eddie and Prince together. 
And it was being able to eclipse Prince because Eddie was that huge. I remember being in Eddie's bedroom where the black elite stars come to hang out and smoke a smoke with Eddie Murphy on top of the world and how they would just dissect Hollywood and make a plan for how they, what they were going to do in Hollywood, how they were going to run Hollywood, and did. The hot people of L.A. would be there in his house, in his bedroom. Of course, I've seen your hall. Just the whole scene, to me, was kind of mind-blowing to be around that much power at the same time. And at that time, Eddie's house was Cheryl's old house. It would be the house up in the bedroom where you hit a button and the ceiling would go back. So the whole house ceiling would go back to see all the stars at night as he's going on about whatever he's talking about and all of this is going on. So just incredible experiences. Then you go downstairs in the kitchen. Now Eddie wants to be hot with, with comedy. Now he's going on a whole comedy routine about midgets making love to who they want to make love to. And he's jumping them down like a midget would jump them down, spinning around, making love on this, this cat. Just crazy. Out thinking, but that's how he was. Really out there. And profound at the same time. So I was always just taken back by all the sides of Eddie Murphy. The quiet intellectual side and the wild just let it hang outside. Then you go to his house in New Jersey. Because I wanted to bring him to meet Guru because Eddie had a spiritual side. Eddie wanted to meet Shrishan Moy. So I go to hang out at his house with Anakampa. And I hang out at his house. And beautiful home with the indoor pool and everything beautiful. And then we got, we hop in the car to go to see Guru. And when you go to meet Guru, he says, well, what will my spiritual name be? He asks Guru. And Guru says, I have to think about that, but it would be the breakdown of the emperor of, of comedy. Whatever Sanskrit would be for the emperor of comedy is what I would name you because you're the emperor. And he said, okay. Then he said, well, I want to know about life and death. Tell me about life and death. So then Guru would go on a whole thing to Eddie about life and death. What it's like when you die? What happens to the soul? That there are seven lower worlds, seven higher worlds. How the soul would, would go through these worlds onto where it's journeying to get to. So Eddie was really held captive by the whole thing. So I have all that kind of memories with Eddie too. I have Eddie, memories of Eddie in here singing, Put Your Mouth On Me. Done like a Prince record. And then the video we made for with Johnny Gill in the video with all the girls, all Playboy girls in the video playing horns and stuff. He's really a star, man. Wonderful star. And I miss him to this day. I want to see Eddie again. Then I remember watching him one time. He had a little TV in his house, another house he had. A little TV. And that's how I watched how he get all these characters. Like when you see all the different characters you play in the movie with Janet Jackson, you know, he's the Nutty Professor. And where we marvel how he can be the father, how he can be the grandmother, how he can be the mother. You know, Hercules, Hercules, how he can be his brother, how he can be all his characters, his little TV. And he'd watch the TV of himself perfecting the character on TV and watch himself in that role. Because you could see on TV, he had all the different makeup, teeth, different hairdo, and he was studying himself. So I thought that was really intriguing. But out of that would come all, this, all these like defined characters that he could carry and sustain a whole movie with. So I have the greatest respect for Eddie Murphy. I have the greatest respect for him. Madonna was becoming a big star from the first album. The first things we heard from her, we knew she was a bad, bad chick. Great dancer, coming on strong with the singing, hit songs, making a movement off the first album with Jelly Bean Benitez and who she was ever working with. She was making a movement. So when she called me, I knew it was an important phone call. 
I was hot with Stacey, Stacey Lattazo on whatever I was doing. So she said, I want to come to San Francisco and meet you. I said, okay. She flew to San Francisco. I went in my Audi to go pick her up at the airport. And sure enough, she came out she was beautiful. Madonna is flawless. And I walked to my car with her, and we got in my car, and we drove to the Automat Studios. And it was just a nice, pleasant way to be with her in the car and just kind of get to know her a little bit and be around her. And we get to the studio, and I'm smart to know to have balloons for her and things that are going to relax her and have the band around, like Randy Jackson was my bass player. He wanted to become the big judge for American Idol. So he's around having fun laughing. Karada Rusichi, the guitar player, he's there looking beautiful. Uh, Charlie Boom uh, Chapman, my dancer, he's there. Uh, the, the engineering staff, Dave Frazier's around. You know, people are around to make it feel good. Preston Glass is there. So after we have a little fun meeting her, then I can go off in this little side room and sit down and talk to her in Studio A. And I remember she's on the floor. I sit in a little chair. And she's on the floor. She's just beautiful. And I remember looking at her, and she blinks her eyes really fast, like this. If you ask her a question, like, what do you think about Mr. 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 T? Because Mr. T was hot at the time. She goes, I don't know if I really like Mr. T that much. Well, why? I don't know if I really like his philosophy. You know? She'd blink her eyes really fast. And I would just talk to her about music, what she wanted to do. And she seemed to have a really strong idea of what she wanted to accomplish at that time. She would like me to produce her next album. I said, oh my God, I'm very honored by that. Very honored by that. So then we kind of wrapped it up talking that we'd continue our talk, how we would strategize making an album together. And she would say things to me like this on the, on the drive back to the airport. She would say, you're signed to Warner Brothers. I said, yeah. She said, well, Lenny Warnker, who's the president of Warner Brothers, is my friend. And I can call Lenny Warnker and tell him to push your album back and make room for my album so you can work on my album first. And I was like, wow, taking aback that she would be talking to me like, like that. She would call the record president and tell the president, Lenny Warnker, to push my album back to make time for her album and go hop on the plane and I'm going to call you and talk to you. I said, oh my God, you're something else, girl. So she left. And about a week later, I got a phone call. I was in my hot tub. And midnight, so it'll be three in the morning for her in New York. She was in New York. She says, I, I'm so sorry, I gotta stay in New York. I'm gonna work with Nile Rogers on my next album. I said, Okay. She says, You know, I just, I love New York now. I'm in New York. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay here and make the album. I said, Well, okay, we'll have a good, good time. It'll be, I'm sure it'll be great. And she turned around with Nile and made the biggest album of all time, Like a Virgin, with my friend on drums, who's my old student, Tony Thompson on drums. And they wore it out. And that became the big, big, big blowout again for Madonna. So, you know, bless her heart. And I'm still looking to work with her while we're young and sexy. So come on, girl, let's go.